Hello and welcome everyone. I am Jake Wurzak and this is Masters of Moments. This podcast features conversations with the top entrepreneurs and business leaders around hospitality, real estate, investing, and company building. Thank you so much for joining me and enjoy the show. You've heard it on the podcast so many times and I'm gonna say it again. Relationships are everything in real estate. At Dovehill Capital Management, one of the most interesting things about our track record is that the majority of the deals have come to us off market or lightly marketed. So we had this innovative idea a few years ago, and that was to launch the Deal Rewards Program at Dovehill Capital Management. If you want to learn more, you can go to www.dovehillcoes.com. Again, that's www.dovehillcoes.com. You click on the little Deal Rewards icon and you can sign up. And if you have a deal that's off market, that somehow came to you, maybe you're working on a deal, you're trying to put it together, bring it to us because we can help you get that deal done through our deal rewards program. We offer industry-leading incentives. We'll allow you to co-invest in the deal. We could come up with another interesting structure to allow you to do the deal with us. The deal rewards program is incredibly unique and will give you an opportunity to do a deal with Dove Hill either in a completely passive position, or maybe you're taking a more active role. Either way, please check out the Deal Rewards Program at www.dovehillcoes.com. Appreciate it. And this is how we've been getting our flow. The team at Wurzak Hotel Group is just firing on all cylinders right now. So I'm very, very excited and proud to announce that we now have a third-party management program where we are managing hotels for other owners. We used to just manage hotels for ourselves, and now we've made some tremendous forward investments in people, our team, technology, accounting, finance, and most importantly, culture, and we are prepared to bring that out to everyone. Our team is experienced in managing independent hotels, branded hotels. We have focused heavily on boutique, lifestyle, and experiential hotels, and we're ready to manage a hotel for you. So if you are interested, if you wanna learn more about what we do and how we can help your hotel, please visit wurzakhotels.com. My conversation today is with Sieva Kozinski, founder of Enduring Ventures. Enduring Ventures is a hold co. So basically like Berkshire Hathaway, these guys have acquired a bunch of blue collar businesses with a, maybe a little bit of tech business. And their plan is to make them better, to improve the processes and to watch the cash flows grow. And then they continue to just reinvest the cash flow into more deals. So we talk about everything to, from how he structures the deals, what he looks for in businesses, how he buys the businesses. We talk about creative ways to finance the businesses. We also talk about Sieva's thoughts on fund size and how he's structured Enduring Ventures and how he's about to potentially raise a new fund and what that's going to look like. Please enjoy my conversation today with Sieva Kozinski. I thought a good place to start would be to understand what a hold co is, but also how the idea has evolved from like the days of Warren Buffett to what you're doing now and what some other folks are trying to do now. Because at least for me, an outsider looking in, it seems like there's a hole. You know, there's the Warren Buffett, but then there's 
a big gap or a space. And then there's some people that I'm hearing about now. Maybe you can talk about that. Yeah, sure. I'm happy to. I think a holding company is just a name, maybe a fancy name for somebody who likes to be an investor and somebody who likes to buy businesses and make money for their shareholders. So when Warren Buffett got started, he started as an investment partnership. So classic fund model. He went around, he raised money from his rich friends and his rich neighbors. And then I think he had a zero, six and 25 model or something like that, which basically means he had 0% management fees. After 6% pref, he was getting a 25% return. That's going to be pretty close. I'm not 100% sure if I remember the details correctly, but that is the model that he ran for the first kind of let's say 10 years of his life or so. And what that allowed him to do is it allowed him to build up a capital base because he didn't have a bunch of money at the time. So when he was clearing his 6% hurdle, he was making income for himself. And most of that money, he was reinvesting as an LP in his own fund. So over time, his capital base grew until the point where he could buy out the company that we all call Berkshire Hathaway, which is originally a textile mill, he kind of fired all of his investors or he really gave them the option to roll into his Berkshire Hathaway business. And he said, look, I'm not going to manage your money anymore, but you can co-own this new company with me. And then we're going to use its cash flows to go out and make investments and buy new businesses. And that really became the kind of grandfather of holding companies that we know today. A single business that generated around $4 million of net income per year, which he then used to deploy into investments like Amex and Blue Chip Stamps and then Seize Candies, which eventually grew to the multi-hundred billion dollar portfolio today. So when you ask me about what has kind of changed and, and what is still the same, you know, I, when I look around, I see a handful of people doing private holding companies. Some of them, them are doing them the old Warren Buffett methodology, right? They're raising money either deal by deal in order to build up their capital base into their holding company, or they're raising a fixed sum of capital that then they're using until the, until they build up again their capital base so they so that they can then become money managers for themselves. But you know, one thing that's kind of interesting about Warren Buffett is that we see him as kind of this like long-term hold private equity, kind of long-term hold private equity buyer today, somebody who buys businesses, great businesses, beautiful businesses, and really holds them for the long term. But the way Warren Buffett got started is he was just kind of a hustler, entrepreneur, and investor, right? He would invest in anything that made him a buck where he saw a clear arbitrage opportunity with a low probability of downside. And I'm happy to talk more about that, but I've, uh, I've always admired how his kind of reputation has changed over time and therefore his brand has changed over time with that. We're going to get into your platform, but jumping ahead a little a little bit. You focus primarily on private companies. Buffett focuses mostly on public companies. Why have you chosen that path as opposed to public e equities? So this is a, something that's really changed over time. And Warren Buffett talks about this in interviews. When he got started investing, there weren't a lot of people investing in the public stock market. I don't, I don't know the exact numbers, but it was like less than 10% of individuals had their personal funds in public equities. 
I think the last time I checked, the number is closer to 50% in the U.S. That's a huge jump, not to mention the pension funds, the endowments, the professional investors that have sprouted up over the time, over this time. So when asked, Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger, rest in peace, would talk about how the game of investing has always been difficult and the game being looking for undervalued assets that they can invest in with, again, low probability of downside, high probability of upside, right? That game has always been hard, but it's gotten much harder is what they say. And the reason it's gotten much harder is because information is ubiquitously available, right? When Warren first invested in his first insurance company, he had to go door to door to individual farmers in order to buy their physical stocks from them. He saw an opportunity, he saw an undervalued asset, and he then did the legwork to get, get this information and then buy the stocks. Same thing with Geico. Right before he invested in Geico, he reached out to the CEO of the company. He actually knocked on the door on a weekend, I think it was a Saturday, and a cleaning person opened the door and said, hey, there's nobody here except for the CEO. And Warren said, great. I want to go see the CEO. So he got introduced to the CEO of Geico at the time. And he's this kid. You know, I think he's like 19 or 20 at the time. His feet are barely touching the ground. And he just peppers the CEO for hours about the business and every facet of it. And that gave him a unique advantage, a, a unique information advantage that other people didn't have as an investor. Today, fast forward to today, you know, there are mandated quarterly reports there's mandated quarterly calls with investors. And the reason those came about is because the SEC felt like some, some investors had a lot more information than others. So they started creating rules that mandated the company to provide minimum disclosures, financials, and calls and interviews. So now the amount of information that's available is ubiquitous. Right. Everybody can learn anything they want about Geico. They just have to join these quarterly calls. They can read through their reports that are super detailed now. And there's just a lot less room for that information arbitrage. So that's how Warren started his career. He built up his base of investing. He built up a ton of value. And now that he has a huge balance sheet, he can use that in order sometimes to get special deals in the public markets. That's not always the case. You know, they're still always looking for just plain undervalued assets. But when the time is right, he gets, you know, for example, like right after 2008, when the economy was falling apart, Wells Fargo and Bank of America came to him for an investment and he did a preferred equity investment where there was no way he was going to lose, right? Downside is he owns all of Wells Fargo or Bank of America, these incredible American institutions. And upside was he, you know, made five, 10 times his money over this time period. So all that to say that the public markets are far more liquid and far more difficult to find arbitrage opportunities, whereas the private markets are incredible, are still illiquid, but there's less information available. There's le less of a liquid marketplace. And therefore, you know, on any given deal, our competition is maybe a couple of other guys that, that are private equity buyers or individuals. And I would prefer to have one or two competitors in any given deal rather than the whole world who has access to the internet. What is your competitive edge as you now lean in heavily to your strategy? 
I think a competitive edge in the investment game is rarely a single silver bullet. It's a combination of thousands of small decisions and factors that add up over time. You know, for example, we, me and Xavier, my business partner, we're the two founders of the firm. We're the two capital allocator decision makers of the firm. Both of us don't come from a private equity background. We spent 15 to 20 years building companies from scratch. So we've raised money for businesses. We've hired employees. We've grown revenue. We've grown earnings. And we've also exited companies. So we've done the full life cycle of multiple businesses. That's a pretty unique skill set in the world of private equity, which is really where we operate today. You know, we are a subset of the greater private equity world. Of course, we're not classic private equity because we're not buying businesses and looking to sell them a few years later. We really don't believe in that. We believe in buying great companies and holding them for as long as we can. In this world of private equity, most people came up through finance, right? They went to a classic Ivy League. Then they did. Then they went to investment banking for two years. Then they went to another Ivy League for business school, maybe Harvard or Wharton or Stanford. And then when they graduated, they started their journey in private equity. Xavier and I, we cut our teeth building businesses. And we found that to be incredibly useful along a variety of different areas. But really, one, first and foremost, which has been important, is connecting with owners, right? When we get in the room with an owner who's built an incredible plumbing business or incredible consumers business over 20 years, they can hear that we've been in their position before. You know, we've struggled to make payroll in the early days. You know, we've maybe had our friend or roommate or partner answer the customer service calls. We've worked at all hours of the night to get this thing off the ground. And when you've gone through that pain, when you've gone through those struggles, you know, they say game recognize game, right? Like it's, it's kind of the same idea. When we're in the room with the owner, we're not a couple of finance guys. We really intimately understand them and their business. And because of that, as well as our long-term hold vision for businesses, is something that really attracts them to us. And when an owner comes to us, you know, we're more likely to get a good business at a fair value and a good business, right? We're, we're uh, a good business because it's really something that, We're really a place where owners want their business to go to, right? They're not just trying to flip it for the highest dollar. They really care about who are these guys? What are they going to do to my business? How are they going to treat my employees? And that has become a, a real advantage for us, I think. Why did you decide to pivot from operating and owning your own businesses to investing in other people's businesses? which eventually, I guess, become your own, but you're an investor now, you were an operator. Yeah, you know, my, my business partner, Xavier, likes to say, I earned the right to lo- no longer be an operator. And being a founder and an owner is difficult. You know, starting a business from scratch is incredibly hard. You know, I think you've done it before as well. You know what it takes. And after doing that for about 20 years, you know, you've built up the skills, you've built up the know-how of what it takes to own and run a good business, but maybe we no longer have the desire of starting that business from scratch. So for us, this was a great way to transition our experience set to something that was going to deliver a high return on 
on investment and a good return on time for us and our shareholders. And that, and that's really how this was born, right? As Xavier and, and I, we'd been friends for many years. I'd always seen him as, a, as an entrepreneur that I really respected, that I really looked up to. We sat, One day he came to me and he said, hey, like, why don't we work on something together for our next business? I love that idea. Let's do it. So we got together and we started thinking, you know, should we start something? Should we buy something? How do we how do we plan this next journey? How do we really approach it in a thoughtful way? So we're not just jumping in feet first and then kind of scrambling to figure out what we're doing. We want it to be thoughtful. We want it to be measured about our approach and really take on a, a new journey that was going to be the best return of investment on our dollars spent, but also the best return on our time and something that was a good fit for our personalities, our experience set, and, and the things that we had done before. So that's how Enduring Ventures was born, right? Is it came out of this brainstorm with Xavier around, hey, what is the last business you would ever want to start? What is something that you would want to pour all of your energy into growing, but also give you enough flexibility and creativity to do effectively what you want on a day-to-day basis? Did you start Enduring Ventures with a specific first investment, a first deal, or did you launch the company, set up the structure, raise the capital, and then go out and find your first deal? Yeah. The funny thing about making plans is they never work out. So we we told our friends that we were going to buy a couple of businesses from owners who wanted to retire old school businesses, blue collar businesses, maybe manufacturing. And we raised a little bit of money from friends and family, people who'd known us for decades, who who knew us, who believed in us. And they kind of wrote us a blank check, right? For them, it didn't matter what we were going to do. They just wanted to bet on us. And for that, frankly, I'm very grateful to them that that they took a chance on us early on. Then we set out to start looking for businesses and we were looking in those categories, blue collar, retired owner, manufacturing, et cetera. But basically in the first month that we started, we received an email from a business called upcouncil.com, which we had both used in the, in the past as customers. And the service of upcouncil was basically to help you find attorneys for your business. So instead of hiring a big fancy law firm that's ex- ex- incredibly expensive, you could go to upcounsel.com, put in a service request like, hey, I need a investor document or I need an employment document or any variation of what you might need as a business. You put in a service request and half a dozen lawyers will bid on your project. And these are lawyers that usually come from big law. They're well-reviewed. They're just running their own boutique law firm now. And because of that, they don't have the overhead of a big firm, so they can charge you much less, oftentimes 50% less than what what a big firm would charge you. So I'd used it in my previous companies. Xavier had used it in in his previous companies. And this business had raised about $25 million from some big VCs. They'd grown a big brand. They had millions of visitors to their site every month, but they were no longer on this venture capital path. They couldn't grow fast enough to get their next round of funding. So we received an email that said UpCouncil was shutting down. And we immediately thought to ourselves, well, you know, we want to buy a business. Why don't we reach out to them and see if we can buy the assets and salvage this great business and this great brand that we both believed in? 
So we, we reached out to the founders and sure enough, you know, they were at the end of their road. They had already announced their shutdown. So we we're able to get that business at kind of pennies on the dollar from what, what we think it was worth. And over the next few months, we transitioned that business from losing millions of dollars to being profitable, to being a profitable enterprise SaaS business. And that's what it is today. And we have a great CEO of running it and growing it. But that was our first business and it, it came out of the blue. And sometimes that's just how things happen. You know, as we're out here sharing our message, swimming around, looking for great businesses and great owners. And sometimes we find businesses because we reached out specifically to someone. But once in a while, somebody will reach out through Twitter or through our website or, or whatnot to, to present a really cool opportunity for us. And, and that's been a, a fun part of this journey. What did you actually do at UpCouncil to make it profitable and to make it a viable business? And maybe you can answer that in the context of, you know, going through this bull market, call it from, I don't know, 17 to 2022, there were all these new venture companies that would raise all this money, get so excited about the money that they raised, but they're not profitable. Maybe it's an interesting business, but they're not profitable. And that's a very different path than I would guess a lot of the businesses that you're buying, which are just, as you call it, blue-collar businesses, which probably within the first couple of months were profitable. What did you do at UpCouncil? And then like, why is there this separation from the VC world to the blue-collar world? Yeah, when you're a VC-backed company, you have unlimited dollars in order to grow your business, right? The main intent is to build a multi-billion dollar company and you'll do it at any cost, right? Dollars in, people fired, people hired, it doesn't really matter. You're going scorched earth to get to that, to that scale as quickly as possible. And what that does is it obscures your need to run a good profitable business. Running a good profitable business is not easy. It's a simple idea, right? Am I creating enough revenue minus my expenses in order to have a good net income? So it's a very simple idea, but it, it can be pretty hard when your primary goal, your primary vision is to spend as much money as possible to grow. So that balance sheet, you know, let's say you've raised $20 million and you have that in the bank account, but you're losing money on every customer you acquire, that balance sheet is obscuring the poor unit economics of your business. So if you take away venture capital and you just go to an entrepreneur and you say, hey, you need to start a business, they don't have this swimming pool bank account of cash floating around. All they need to worry about is, are you, Jake, going to pay me enough money so that I can pay my bills, my, you know, maybe an employee, and have a little bit of a profit at the end to be, to be able to pay my own rent or put food on the table for my family? And Therein lies the difference, right? One of them is profitable by necessity because if he's not profitable, he can't pay for an employee and he can't pay his rent. So he's going to get yelled at and then he has to go get a job. And in the other case, you have a huge pool of money where you can pay yourself a great salary, you can pay your employees a great salary, and you just kind of forget that you're running a business, right? Because all you're focused on is, can we take our revenue from 2 million to 10 million to 100 million? And if you don't, you have so much money in the capital stack in front of you 
that it's not worth it to, for you to keep going. So your incentives are mixed. So what did you do at UpCouncil to quickly turn it around after they had this mindset of the VC philosophy and the VC style? Yeah, and, and we've actually done a few of these VC turnarounds to date now. We get a lot of inbound from VCs, lenders, and entrepreneurs, founders who've been pursuing their company for 10 years, who don't see a path to being a multi-billion dollar company and are just looking for an off-ramp right? They've been doing this for a long time. They don't see themselves doing it for another five years. They need somebody to acquire this business, but it's not good for private equity because private equity wants a profitable, healthy, growing business. And it's no longer good for venture capital because they're not going to be a multi-billion dollar business. So we sit in that in-between zone, right? You can call us and you can say, look, I have a business that's doing $12 million a year in revenue, but it's losing $10 million a year. We have all these expensive people. We have an expensive CMO. We have a team in New York of engineers. We have this expensive office. We have a big old Amazon bill. And the VCs no longer want to fund us. And private equity won't look at this, right? Because we're losing seven to $10 million a year. So we'll take a look at that business. And if we think that there's a good business model here and primarily that either A, it's a messed up balance sheet or B, it's a messed up cost structure. Usually it's both. That's really what we're looking for. If we identify those three things with meaningful revenue and we think we can turn the business profitable on both a unit economic basis and a true net cash flow basis, then we'll come in, we'll buy the business Either, either we will put in our own team who kind of drops in like the Navy SEALs and turns the business around, or we'll work in tandem with an executive of the team in order to, to get the same turnaround going, right? But at its core, we're not going to have expense, you know, 50 expensive engineers for a software company in New York City. It just doesn't make sense if we're looking to run the business for profit. You know, Oftentimes when we take over a business, they haven't negotiated their Amazon bill. So we bought a business recently that was paying $2 million a year or north of like a million and a half on their hosting. And we kind of asked them, we're like, hey, when's the last time you guys either reformatted things in order to just take up less space and less have less service needs? Or B, when have you kind of called them to negotiate a better price because you're spending so much money? And the CEO candidly told us, he said, look, we've never done that, right? Their goal was to go out and raise like $60 million, right? Saving a 500000 or 800000 whatever that was going to do for them in the a year period wasn't going to save them, right? It was binary. You'll see whether they were going to raise the $50 million or they were going to fail. And this $800,000 bill meant nothing to them, but it means everything to us, right? I love it. What are their characteristics, kind of like the little quick back of napkin underwriting that you're looking for in a potential business that you're going to acquire? What are the documents you're asking for? And then when you get those, what are the few things you zero in on to know whether it's a yes or a no quickly? Yeah, just to give folks listening a little bit of background. So we have two main pillars of businesses that we acquire. One is these turnaround businesses, right? Where we're looking for a great business with good revenues and either something's wrong with their balance sheet or they're not profitable, but we think we can make it profitable pretty quickly. So that's one of our pillars of business. Our other core pillar of business, and this is 
likely where we spend 70% of our time is buying old school cash flowing businesses that have been around for over 20 years where the owner wants to either retire sometime in the next year or two, or they want to take chips off the table, keep a meaningful piece of the business and keep running it alongside of us. And that's really where we spend a lot of our time. And I think that probably answers some of your question as well. So our kind of core size that we're looking for now is at, at its smallest level, around 3 million of EBITDA or earnings, really 2.5 million and up. So somewhere between 2.5 million and 5 million is really where we specialize. The reason we like that size is because it's still subscale for private equity. So many of the big funds are looking for 10 million of EBITDA and above. Some of them have started looking for 5 million of EBITDA and above. Because of that, businesses of that size are getting competed for and the valuations are getting spiked up beyond a range that we think is reasonable. At the two and a half to five million of EBITDA range, you have a business that's stable, that has a management team that has proven that it can survive different cycles in the economy, but it's still under the size where the price is getting bid up. So we can buy a business at our sweet spot, which is really you know three times on the low end, around six times earnings on the high end. And once we buy that business, you know, if you just do the back of the envelope math, you're talking about a business that's returning cash on cash. If you just bought it all equity, somewhere between 15% and 33% per year, right? 33% if you're uh, around 33% if you're paying three times or around 15% if you're, if you're paying six times. So pretty quickly, you can see that the model works, right? The back of the envelope model works. The S&P 500 over the last 50 years has averaged an 8% return per year. So if you can get anything above 15% or even 20%, that's an incredible deal. And um, anything above an 8% return is a good deal. Under even that an same 8% scenario. return is a great deal. I'm perfectly happy having my money in a, eight, in a deal that consistently returns 8% for the next 40 years. And I think anybody should be as well. But, but, you know, when I talk to like family offices, when I talk to pension fund investors, endowments, et cetera, they love lower middle market private equity, which is the kind of the segment of the world that we play in. And it's, it's for all of those reasons, right? It's big enough that there's a real business there that has proven stability and it's small enough that you can get a true arbitrage, especially if you have an operational lens on the businesses, which is what we have because we're entrepreneurs first and foremost. doesn't mean necessarily that we're getting super involved with every single business, but if we need to, we have the, the experience to do so, right? To support our CEOs or find a great CEO if the owner wants to retire. Let's talk about that. How do you interview the management team and understand their skills and capabilities and determine whether they're people that you can work with or if you're going to need to bring in your own CEO? Yeah, I'm a crazy person when it comes to diligence, or some people would, would think that of me. I want to talk to most of the team members. I definitely want to talk to all of the key management and I want to meet with customers. I want to talk with service providers. I go the full length and the full distance when we're doing diligence. Because through these types of interactions and conversations, it allows me to get a full picture of the business, right? Sometimes we'll learn of things that, of course, kill the deal. 
But for a great business, I'm going to have, I get an opportunity to really understand what are the driving dynamics? What are the key levers of this business? Where, what are the strengths of this business? Like, why has it persisted all of these years? Why has it beat out the competition, right? Everybody operates in a very competitive landscape. So my diligence serves to help me understand, you know, what is unique about this business and what is, because, because every business is like pretty simple, you know, I think people overcomplicate business. Every business is just a couple of baseline levers, maybe a foundation, maybe a roof, maybe some windows. And you have to figure out what are those core levers that drive the category of business that you're looking at? And what are the core levers that make this particular business that you're talking to so special? So I'll talk to the key management. I want to spend a lot of time with them, right? Because after we buy the business, we're kind of family, right? We, we talk to them all the time. They see us all the time. We're not just like this group that, that's kind of in the background that nobody knows about. Our preference is when the CEO or president wants to sell the business and stick with us for many years and run it side by side. That's always a great outcome, Right. We are pretty hands-off investors, meaning we're not kind of pressuring them on a weekly basis or monthly basis in order to hit some specific targets. We're not telling them how to do their job. We're really here in order to be supportive, be a thoughtful sounding board, and help them make better decisions in their business. And I think that's why presidents and CEOs of these businesses really love to work with us. And it's not that we are kind of angels or we're particularly special. It's just our incentives are around the long-term holding company, right? We're not asking these people to exit after a few years. Whereas if you look at a private equity firm's incentive model, they need to sell the business in two to three years. They need that to eke out a profit. They need to clear their pref hurdles so that they can personally make a carry. So if the business isn't growing fast enough, they're going to be pushing every week, right? They're going to be on calls. They're going to be driving sales. They're going to be asking, hey, where can we increase prices? Can we cut a couple more people? Can we cut corners with some of our suppliers? They're really, really driving that CEO and president. And I think that's like somewhere where owners need to be really careful, right? You may get the highest price, but you may hate your life after you sell your business because you're committing to this relationship that that you don't really understand, right? And and it's not your fault that you don't understand. I didn't understand private equity until I got into it either, but it's something to really consider and think about. So we spend a lot of time with the owners. We want to get dinner. We want to get lunch. We want to spend days on site with them. We want to ride along in the trucks with their workers. We really want to feel like there's an, an integration between our two cultures beyond the economic understanding, right? Beyond the financials are good, the price is right. I think we can do this. We really want to deeply understand who you are, what makes your business special, who are the special people in that business, and do we like the culture? Because like we've made, you know, one of the biggest learnings I've had early on is that you can't buy a good business with a bad culture. So we bought a business that we bought it super cheap, right? Compared to its competitors. We, we found it off market. We got a great deal and we were like, great, like this is going to be excellent. And as we were doing diligence, there was kind of a couple of like red flags that came up around, Hey, I don't know how happy people are here. Or maybe it's, maybe that's that they love their job, but they don't like the CEO because he's, you know, he's too aggressive or he's too intense. 
And we kind of swept those things under the rug because we told ourselves, hey, this is a good price. This is a good business. We can fix these little things that we're seeing in the culture. And the reality of it is you can't fix culture. You can fix a lot of things. You can sometimes fix sales. You can certainly fix the finance department, but you cannot change the culture of a business. And you don't want to, you don't want to plan on it because once we got into the business, we realized that, you know, if people don't like the CEO, well, we have to tell them that. And if he no longer wants to work there, now we have a group of people that have been conditioned to poor behavior or they've been conditioned to behave in a certain way by CEO that we can't change. And very quickly, you know, things start to get very challenging. So how did you resolve that deal? I mean, fortunately, it was in an industry where the the demand for the product that they offer in the area that they're in is so high that despite making mistakes here, mistakes there, and mistakes here with, with leadership, which we did, we did all the mistakes, I promise you, the business was able to persist and go on. So it dropped down a little bit but not in a, in a way that was destructive to the overall portfolio or to the overall business. So we got lucky, frankly. You know, we, we had that lens going in. We, we knew that this was a business that was in high demand. So the business dynamics were good. We knew that we were getting a good price. But in retrospect, we wish we didn't have to deal with some of the culture issues. What's the best way to incentivize a CEO that's not looking to retire, that wants to stick around, but just wants an exit? There's nothing better than skin in the game, you know? So a good format is we buy 70 or 80% of your business and you roll over the rest. You know, for a lot of entrepreneurs, your business that you've grown for 20 years is your most valuable asset by far. 99% of your net worth is in it. So when there's a recession or things get hard, maybe a a couple of your managers quit or something happens, you feel the personal brunt of that, right? Your investment value quickly decreases. And you know what it takes to to increase it, to grow it again, but it's it's scary. It's very scary if you're, you're kind of getting into your later years. So... What we like to do in those scenarios is, you know, we'll give you some money to take your chips off the table. You can take that money, you can put it into bonds, which is a safer investment for you. You can put it into the S&P 500. But for a lot of these people, like they're not going to retire. They can't retire. I'm sure you know a bunch of people like this. Like there's people in my yep, life that are great at retiring. But most people that I've met that have worked their whole life, that poured their soul into something, like that's who they are. That's their personal brand. That's where they get joy and fulfillment from. So the idea of retiring is just not even in their head, right? And that's why so many people are, so many owners that we talk to are scared of selling 100% is they wonder to themselves, what am I going to do afterwards? So this is a good solution for those folks. Take some money off the table and keep running the business get to continue being the face and the name of the business and we'll support you and be your sounding board and give you the network of the enduring ventures portfolio what's the best way and how have you found to integrate enduring ventures into a 20-year business where you're viewed in the best way and and what mistakes have you made we've probably made every mistake in the book 
fortunately we've we've survived to tell the tale and those lessons are are going to be remembered forever you know hopefully we don't make them again so i'd say one mistake that we made is is perhaps a classic mistake but we bought a business and we tried to integrate them and upgrade them and their systems very quickly. You know, we looked at the business and we said, oh, these guys are using paper and pen. There's some basic software and CRM they could be using. These guys are using their personal cell phones. They should be using a VoIP or some kind of centralized phone system. All of these things that, you know, people our age, for example, look at and say, oh yeah, that's obvious. And that's an easy fix. It's not gonna meaningfully change the culture. People should be able to easily adopt it. But the reality of the situation is any change, any change at all in a business is meaningful. And and that's something that I didn't really understand, right? Even going from paper and pen to using a CRM, well, now you have 50 employees that you need to teach not only on using a CRM, but some of them haven't used email in years, you know? It's just not something that I really like grasped, right? So if you haven't used email in many years, now we're asking you to use a CRM your barrier to entries is pretty high. It's hard for you to learn this thing. And now your job depends on it, right? Like if you don't do this action, do your job and then log it in the CRM, you may not be able to get your commission or you may not be able to get your pay. And now this person is seeing this obstacle that you put up in front of them as just that, right? They're saying, I used to make good money. I used to get paid my commission based on these little paper slips that I understood. And now you're asking me to use the CRM. And now I'm not getting paid as quickly as I was before because I don't understand the CRM. It's taking me too long. You know, so that's, that's a clear example of our expectation was this is a small change and we're going to do it quickly. And their experience was this is a big change. Like we need to take our time with this and Definitely don't change my cell phone and my, my phone system while you're also doing this. So we don't do that anymore, right? Our, our process is really, if we're buying a good business, that's a good business for what it is. We really want to take our time and we want the change to be driven by the CEO. They know the business, they know the employees, they understand the culture, and it's really not up to us or our services in order to, 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 to implement that change and to tell them how quickly it should happen, just because we don't have a feel for it. We're not in the office. We haven't known these people for years. you know. And, and when we do buy a business, I think the natural expectation from, from, from a company that we're buying and some of the employees is to raise their guard right? They're wondering, who are these guys? What are they going to do? What does it mean for me and my family? Which is a very reasonable way to think, right? It's what I would think if somebody bought my company. But because their guard is raised, we have to do the opposite, right? It's on. It's up to us to not push a bunch of change. And even if it's good change, it's really not up to us to push a bunch of change, right? We have to get to know them. We have to build trust and then implement those changes. The other learning that we had pretty early on was shared services. So if you go into a model like ours and you think to yourself, okay, I'm going to be buying a bunch of businesses. Every business has marketing. It has sales. It has HR and recruiting, and it has technology and finance. Great. I'm going to centralize the accounting. I'm going to centralize the digital marketing. I'm going to centralize the recruiting. And that way, My little local businesses don't all need to pay for the full salary of a person to do this. Instead, I'm going to have a centralized person that does all of it. 
And that is the natural way to approach this model. And some private equity firms have really done a bang out job with this. But for us, what we noticed is that that shared services experience was taking away agency and taking away direction from our CEOs. Because all of a sudden you have a CEO at the top who's doing everything, who's responsible for running the business, and they need to hire people, but your recruiter is either A, not bringing them good people, or they are bringing good people, and it's just natural kind of human behavior to say, hey, you know, your recruiter isn't doing their job, so we're not getting good people, so how am I supposed to hit my targets? And I think as soon as that started happening, we told ourselves we would rather hire and work with incredible CEOs who have skin in the game, who are 100% focused on running and growing a business, and they have 100% ownership on when that business is successful. And in order to do that, they should be able to control their own services and they should be able to control every element of that business. So we pulled out shared services and things got a lot better for us. Is there anything though that you mandate the businesses do your way, regardless of what the business is? Like, hey guys, this is the one thing we need you to do. Maybe it's a business operating system. Maybe it's, I don't know, a reporting dashboard. What is that thing, if anything? Yeah, when we started, we we didn't have any requirements, but as we've gone on, we've learned and we'll continue to learn and I'm sure our process will continue to evolve. But at its core, our most standardized process is around finance. So we have a central controller, his name is Nick at Enduring Ventures, and he oversees all of the finances and consolidated finances of our businesses. So we expect monthly financials from those businesses. Some of those companies have their own controller Some of them are big enough to have their own CFO. All of them have their own bookkeeping system. But that system and the way they update their financials is designed around Nick's vision, basically Nick's kind of standardized format of what what he would like to see from these businesses. And that's really the, I would say that's, that's probably the only thing that we truly standardize. Let's hang on that a little bit. So you have how many businesses now? I think the last count is 21 businesses. How do you manage the business? Like, how are you involved? How do you determine the health of the businesses? How do you track them? What does that process look like at Enduring Adventures? You know, some of our businesses are very hands-off. We have quarterly board reviews with the president. The financials are prepared by a CFO or a controller. And we see the financials monthly, but we only get on a call with them quarterly. Some of our presidents prefer to check in monthly. So we get their financials monthly and we have an hour phone call with them monthly as well. And then in some situations, we have a president of a series of businesses. So we may have three HVAC and plumbing businesses, each with their own general manager, and they report all their materials to a a president that oversees those three businesses. And then that president reports to us. And I guess the last thing is that's worth note. The last thing that's worth noting here is that me and my business partner, we split the world, right? So we operate fairly individually. We talk all the time, but he sits on the board of half the companies and I sit on the board of half the companies. And 
when we're getting updates, when we're seeing financials, when we're reviewing KPIs and providing feedback to the owners, we're not talking about every individual decision, right? The decisions we make together are when, when it comes to capital allocation or strategies for the firm. But when it comes to individual companies, we are the, the kind of final straw, right? We're the person who makes the decision and supports those presidents. And it hasn't been too much. You know, I think, I think where we're lucky and the right decision that we have made is that we hire very sophisticated leaders, GMs, presidents. And when we do that, it allows us to, it takes a lot of the work and kind of the oversight off our hands because they understand the businesses. These are people that have spent 10, 20 years in that particular industry. They know what to look for. They know what's good. They know what's bad. They know what we expect to see in the financials and they report on those. And, you know, when things aren't going well, they're the first ones to raise their hand and say, hey, you know, we're going to have a bad week next week or we're going to have a bad month in the coming month. Here's what's going on. Here's what I'm doing to change it. And here's what you should expect next month. And when we have that type of relationship with presidents and CEOs, it removes that need from us, right? We don't have to be the person to ask and say, hey, like, what is this number? Why is this number so high this month? Why is this number so low this month? So really, our model only works if you work with incredible leaders. What, whether it was this year or over the past couple of years, is the one single idea or hack or process methodology that you've witnessed from one of your CEOs that kind of blew your mind and you've tried to maybe push on other CEOs in your portfolio? This is an incredible question. And it makes me smile because I'm, I'm thinking of a few of our CEOs, presidents really, who are just so parsimonious that it's astounding. I love saving money. I'm an incredibly frugal person, down to my core. I have that immigrant mindset. But some of our presidents that are generating millions of earnings, tens of millions of revenue, they will call me or email me to tell me about a $95 monthly expense that they just cut from the business. Like, what? And they are so proud of it. And there's nothing that like warms my heart more than that type of mentality, you know, because at its core, that's what I've noticed makes for the best. Like the best presidents have a variety of different qualities that we can talk about in, in a moment. But this personal ownership of the expenses of the business is really what makes and breaks most small businesses, right? You can grow revenue, you can grow the brand, you can have a great team. And one company, company A, may be generating 500K a year of earnings. And the same company, same size, could be doing two and a half million of earnings. And that, to achieve that transition between the two businesses, you need that maniacal sense of cost and that maniacal understanding of like, where's your dollar going? And you're constantly thinking about how do I expand margin? How do I increase my top line a little bit while also increasing my bottom line? And when I see presidents that do that systematically, it really makes me smile. 
The other thing that I would say, and, and I think it's important and it's something that's oftentimes overlooked, is the concept of integrity. Our best executives, our top executives are ones that they have a moral compass that points straight north and it never wavers. And it never wavers whether it's more money for them or more money for their friends or just a quick, easy decision that could be a little gray around the edges. They never do it. And they'll tell you, you know, they'll say, hey, this is a, a decision that we have, but I'm uncomfortable with this particular decision. So we're going to go in this other direction. But it might mean that we make a little less money in the short term. And that's another signal that I look for. I, I love hearing that. I love looking for that. People will sometimes fake integrity for a bit. And then when it comes down to making a tough decision that affects them personally, financially, you'll see them waver. So one thing that my business partner always look for is we're looking for that wavering, right? We're looking for people that have unwavering integrity because we're trusting them on a variety of different levels, but we're certainly trusting them with these incredible companies, with the lives of the people that they're supervising. And of course, you know, the value of our shareholders. It, that makes me smile actually, because just today we're buying an industrial deal and a buddy of mine is a broker in town, real kind of boots on the ground in this commercial real estate space. But we were also talking with CBRE to lease it. And someone who works for me is like, hey, what do you want to do? Should we use your friend or do you want to use CBRE? CBRE was, was selling the deal. So I texted my friend. I said, hey, what should we do? Should we use you to lease it or should I use CBRE to lease it? And obviously, financially, it'd be great for him to get the deal and lease it up for us. But he said to me, you know what? You guys should use CBRE because they've been selling the building. They probably know the tenants in the market. They know who's come through the building. Use them. And I was thinking to myself, God, like I am only going to this guy in the future for anything. And that recommendation was just so genuine and is, is really true. And I think it's actually sadly, sometimes lost on a lot of people. And it goes back to your business model because in the private equity world, it's very transactional. And your business model is based on long-term holds. So my question is, because I know you're a deal maker, you've bought 21 businesses. Do you get more energy from making the deals, finding the business, doing the deal? Or do you get more energy from kind of overseeing, operating the business, watching it flourish? Man, that's a tough question. I certainly enjoy the deal-making process. I like meeting with owners. I have incredible empathy and respect for these people that have built businesses and poured their, poured their hearts and souls into creating a company that's a standout in their industry. I know how hard that is. I've been down the path myself. I've now seen hundreds of businesses that will never get to that scale, that will never get to that brand value. And I know what they've sacrificed. You know, they've sacrificed going to their kids' soccer games. They've made difficult decisions for employees, right? They've come out of pocket to pay payroll. So I love meeting with these owners. I love hearing about their stories and how they got to building the business that, that they run today and, and what makes them special. But I also, I mean, it, it brings me huge joy to 
see a business that we acquired that is generating great profits for us and our shareholders, money that we can then reinvest to go buy other businesses, which is really at the core of what we do. But what also makes me really happy, and this is important, I think, to to what we do and and why I do what I do is, is I love seeing our presidents. I love seeing the management. I love seeing the employees enjoy working where they work, right? Oftentimes the work that they do is hard. It's not just going to get easier all of a sudden when we buy the business, but I want it to be a place that they feel like they're building long-term connections with the people that they're working with, long-term connections with their customers, and a place that they're really proud of the brand that they work for, right? And when those things are all checked off, plus making good money, people are happy and it makes me happy, right? So when I hear from our president that, hey, like so-and-so just told me this is the best place they've ever worked, or so-and-so just told me that, you know, they want to work at Dolphin Pools until the rest of their life, or they want to work at Diamondback until they retire. Those are just, that's just music to my ears. You know, I, I love it. It warms my heart. And, and, and you know, it's not, it's not just charity, right? It also creates value for them. It creates value for the business owners and it creates value for the shareholders, right? So there's good in people loving what they do and treating customers well. There's real value in the capitalist engine if done properly. Now, like to your point earlier about your friend who's the broker who who told you to use CBRE, that's a great, that was a great move on his part. He was looking out for what's what's best for Jake and his deal, but also like what's kind of the right thing for CBRE here, right? They did a bunch of work. They know the business. Why not let them lease the space? And he could have made, I'm sure, a, a bunch of money doing so, but he stepped out and he let you work with CBRE directly despite being friends with you. And that's like this idea of finite games versus infinite games, right? Finite games, people who make short-term decisions that hurt people around them, but profit them perfect personally, which is what you and I are talking about, those people are playing finite games, right? They think that I have to take something away from someone else in order to make a buck. People that are playing infinite games believe in this idea that capitalism is a self-perpetuating machine that's growing, right? You can grow the size of the pie if everybody behaves well, right? If everybody's well-intentioned, if you don't have kind of the tragedy of the commons. And that's what's happening here in that, in that scenario, as well as our scenario, right? If we treat our employees well, if we treat our customers well, those customers are going to come back. Those employees are going to stick around. And what that means is, you know, we don't have to go out and hire new employees. We don't have to go out and train new people. We don't have to go find new customers. All of that is contained value for the company, and it's, it's a back and forth engine, right? It's creating value for everyone involved. And I think that's a core principle of what we do at Enduring Ventures is how do you approach capitalism in a principled values-driven way? How focused are you on acquiring platforms or verticals versus just acquiring any old business? So for example, do you want to have an HVAC platform, a vet clinic platform, or are you happy acquiring a diverse portfolio of businesses? We are agnostic in what we look to buy, but saying so is a little bit confusing because really we say no 
to just about anything in healthcare. We say no to anything in biotech. We say no to anything that is complicated and outside our circle of competence. And what that does is it narrows the world, right? There's a very small world of businesses that are very simple, cash flow generating. As they grow, they'll generate more cash flow than they consume. And one lens that we like to have on these businesses is can this business grow 3x over the next 10 years, right? So again, we're not in private equity, so we're not looking to grow, grow, grow quickly and sell it. But we need to believe that this business out of its own cash flows can grow while also generating cash that we can use to reinvest in other businesses. That is the definition of a beautiful business. And, you know, I guess just to explain why it's important for us that these businesses grow. So in private equity, you have two arbitrages, right? You have one, you can grow the business and make it more profitable. That's the one I'm talking about right now. But two, you also get a valuation arbitrage, right? You bought a business at 5X and you sold it at 7X. So you got that 2X multiple arbitrage by selling it as a slightly bigger business or a roll-up. We don't get that, right? We're a holding company, so we prefer to hold our businesses. We don't want to have to sell them. And what that means is in the short term, the only value creation we can have is by increasing the profits. We don't get the arbitrage play because we're never selling the business, right? Now, if you're looking at it from the outside like an investor, you may think to yourself, well, you're missing a lot of the pie, right? Like there's a lot of opportunity that you're leaving on the table. But the reality of the situation is that there have been multiple studies commissioned and Bain did one of these studies in 2018 that show over the long term, long-term holding companies generate a far greater return than short, short-term hold private equity firms. And there's a variety of different reasons that lead up to it, but the very simple ones are transaction fees, taxes, friction of selling a business, and the sheer challenges of having an over-levered business that you need to flip in two to three years, right? So you sell a business, you distribute capital to your LPs, they have to pay taxes on those, and there's transaction fees then they take that money and they reinvest it back in your fund or a similar fund, right? So either way, they're recycling the capital, but they don't get to benefit from the compounding effect of lower taxes. That's one piece. The second piece is most businesses aren't designed to kind of pretty up and flip over two years, right? And we saw this with Toys R Us, for example. That was a good business, good brand in a declining market that was acquired over-levered by private equity. And by the time they tried to sell it, they had to sell it for pieces, right? The, the business had fallen apart. They had to fire most of the employees. They had really destroyed the brand. And there's many examples of this out there. So the long-term hold mechanic is a advantage to buyers because you can buy a business that is maybe seasonal or maybe has great years and then low years. You can also buy a business that maybe had some bumps along the way, but instead of needing to sell it while it's having the bumps, you actually have time to fix it with the team and get it back on its path. So as a long-term buyer, you, you kind of have this like meaningful advantage of growing the company over time. So let's talk about the structure of enduring ventures, because if you have an existing capital base and you never add new investors and you just reinvest the cash flow from those companies to buy new companies, I see how that model works, but you raise capital, people can come in. I believe there is options for liquidity. So talk to me about the structure of Enduring Ventures and 
maybe how that's changed and where you're going with the structure? Yeah, we did something a bit unique for this private holding company, something that we haven't seen many other groups do. We were certainly inspired by Berkshire Hathaway, but Berkshire Hathaway was a public C-corp when Warren acquired it. I think it was $4 million of earnings or so at that time. So for us, we thought to ourselves, okay, we're not going to be a public company because you need much more scale nowadays to be a public company. So we're going to be a private company, but we're going to take some inspiration from Berkshire. We'll have shareholders, but instead of having our public liquidity window, you know, meaning people could buy shares on the public market, we're going to simulate the public liquidity window in the private markets, right? And we took a page out of SpaceX's book because they do this once a year. They generate a private liquidity market. So our businesses generate cash flow. We buy businesses that generate this cash flow. And every two years, we have a liquidity window for our shareholders. So all of our shareholders have bought in with the expectation to hold us for 10, 15, 20 years. But life happens, things change. Some people may need to sell down some of their shares in that time period. So every two years, our company is required to have this liquidity window. And this is my my business partner's idea. And I, I thought this was a great way to approach this. What we do is we value the assets, meaning the the businesses that we own, based on comp valuations of other businesses of that size. We add up all of those pieces. So we add up the value of our broadband business. We add up the value of our HVAC business, our pool business, our software companies. All those pieces get added together. That drives the enterprise valuation. You know, of course, we subtract if there's any debt. We add if there's any cash on the balance sheet. That enterprise value drives our share price. And then the business is required to keep 40% of its free cash on hand in order to buy back shares at that price every two years. And we do a new valuation every two years. Now, there's some basic health checks for the business, right? We want to make sure that being forced to buy back shares isn't putting the overall company in peril. So it's not a perfectly liquid market, but really neither is the public market, right? On If you're selling on the OTC or you have a small public company, it's not perfectly liquid. You can't sell, you can't buy as many shares as you would like without it really messing up the stock price, right? So that's how we do it. And in those liquidity windows, we also have our shareholders who want to buy shares. So current shareholders, as well as future shareholders who reach out to us, we put them on a list. And then when we do this liquidity window, we say, hey, look, you know, one shareholder wants to sell a few hundred thousand dollars worth of shares. Do you want to buy them? And then we match those two in that time period. Okay. So if you can't take on any new capital, what if your ambitions or your target company exceeds the cash on the balance sheet. In those instances, what are you doing? Because you do have the ability to raise capital probably very quickly and very well. So how are you taking advantage of those opportunities that maybe you don't actually have the liquidity for in the current vehicle? Yeah. So something newer that we're doing is we are taking investors directly into the companies. So our first group of investors invested in the C-Corp. Now as an investor, you know, we may get a business under contract that is 3 million of earnings, a beautiful business. We want to take 40% of the equity and we're going to raise money from our current investors and our broader network in order to acquire this business. 
The interesting thing about being a direct investor in these businesses is you can participate in the direct cash flows distributions from those businesses, right? So when we send money back to the mothership, for every million dollars we send back, 600K, we're going to distribute to those shareholders. And some investors, that's really what they want, right? Some investors love the C-Corp concept because it limits their tax liabilities and they can just invest and hold for the long term. Some investors want that ongoing cash flow distribution. So they're excited to co-invest with us in a series of businesses. And, you know, ultimately, once we do enough of these deals, it's going to lead us to a fund structure. So sometime over the next year or so, we're going to announce that we're going to have a committed capital fund where we can take LPs and we'll have a permanent equity style vehicle, a long-term hold, 0% management feed structure where we can deploy capital into these businesses. So 0% management fee, how are you and your partner covering the bills of the operating business and how are you incentivizing yourselves? Like the fantasy of a long-term hold is beautiful, but the reality is you're young in your life, just like me and a lot of people listening. So how are you going to live your life through those years and benefit from the success that you've had. Yeah, you you bringing up that question and reminding me that I'm young just made me think of a mentor that I had when I first started Enduring Ventures and that I still have. He spent his whole career in private equity. And when I was finishing business school, I was telling him that I want to do this long-term hold vehicle. And he was kind of chiding me and making fun of me because he said every few years, uh, somebody comes to him and says, I want to start a long-term hold company. And he tells him not to do it. He was telling me that I shouldn't do it either. He said, because to do a long-term holding company, you have to be comfortable getting rich slow, right? And most people that get into private equity, they don't want to get rich slow. They want to get rich fast. They want to get their carry. They want to get their management fees. And they want to start flying private as quickly as possible. They want to buy a big, beautiful home. So he told me like, look, today, you know, you're frugal, you're graduating your MBA, you probably don't need a bunch of money, but eventually you're going to get married and you're going to have kids and you're going to want to send your kids to private school and you're going to want to go buy a big fancy house on the street in a fancy neighborhood and your long-term hold business isn't going to be able to pay your fees or your bills in order to do that. And he was largely right. But what he didn't know is that I'm frugal by design and I'm perfectly happy to not spend money and wait for the long-term value of compounding this capital until the numbers get quite big. And now that we've been into it for five years, I can see that starting to happen. So your question about management fees is, I think, the right question. But it's the reason we don't want to have management fees is because we don't like the kind of two and 20, three and 30 model that's very common across funds. You know, we think that the way the 2%, the way the 2% model really works is, you know, every year you are getting 2% of the money that you raise. So if you raise a billion dollar fund, you're getting $20 million of management fees every single year. If this is a 10 year fund, you may be receiving $200 million in management fees. Now, if you're a small fund, maybe it's not a problem. 
But the challenge with a fixed management fee is that it's a it's a pretty nice incentive in order to raise a bigger and bigger fund, right? If I, if I have a $10 million fund, my management fees might be $200,000 a year. But if I have a $100 million fund, my management fees are $2 million a year and et cetera. And we think that, we believe that those fixed management fees put your interests in conflict with those of your investors. Because historically speaking, bigger funds have lower returns and smaller funds have bigger returns. But if your management fee grows as you grow the fund, you want to have a bigger fund, which then in turn hurts your investors. So fortunately for us, we now have a series of businesses that generate over $130 million of revenue. Let's call it $20 million plus of EBITDA across our portfolio. So in our fund structure, we don't need dollars in order to pay for the holding company fees. That said, there will be operating fees that will be directly attributed to those businesses that are specifically guided towards running that specific business, right? So for example, if like that business, if there's like legal fees associated with buying that business and we close on it, that business will have to pay for it, right? Or if there's like an employee that we need, like a senior level employee or a recruiter for that business, that business is going to have to pay for it. So it's not that the management fees are truly zero. There are still some operational costs, but these are direct costs. And because we share in the cash flow distributions and we share in the upside be above a pref hurdle, let's say six, seven, or 8%, we are super incentivized to keep those operational costs as low as possible and distribute as much capital as possible so that we can get into the sh- our share of the incentive, right? So we're not incentivized to burden these companies with a bunch of different operating costs in order to simulate these, these management fees. Our, the thing that we care about most is how do we best align our incentives with those of our shareholders? And it's something that we've probably thought more about than any individual investor that's been in it for as long as we have, because we've seen too many models. We've seen too many situations where maybe you're making good money for your investors or maybe not, but your invest and your incentives are misaligned in a way that you are some of your behavior is potentially going to hurt your LPs. So for us, we want to do this for 50 years or we want to do this until we retire. And we want to make sure that along the way, we're not tempted into bad behavior. We want to make sure that our incentives are perfectly aligned. And we think about that all the way down the chain, right? It starts with us. So for us, first and foremost, we got to make our incentives aligned. And I'll give you an example. So for example, in our holding company, our real value creator is our equity, right? We have the same equity as our investors in the business. So as we create more value for them, we create more value for us. We have a fixed salary that, and we're not allowed to give ourselves bonuses. This isn't something that our investors demanded. This is something that we really came up with and said, how do we make sure that there's no kind of easy outs for us to pocket a bunch of cash ourselves without creating a bunch of value for our investors. And that's the structure that we came with, right? It's like we focus all of our attention on equity value creation and we fix all of the other variables of value that we can, uh, of basically like cash that we can give ourselves. And we are the first line of defense, but we think about that for every other piece of our system, right? For consultants that we hire and for presidents that we hire and management team that they oversee as well. I think incentives are the most important thing. How do you 
find the perfect balance between doing what's best for each individual business and then doing what's best for the portfolio for Enduring Ventures as a parent company? Which one are you primarily focused on? Our boss is our shareholder base. And we need to make decisions that are going to create value for them and that optimize the way we spend our time for share value creation and enduring ventures, right? So that's really how we dictate where do we focus. That's really like how we decide where do we focus our attention on a day-to-day basis. Fortunately, for most of our companies, we have very senior leaders so they can deal with kind of the day-to-day ups and downs and, and um, decision-making, and we don't have to get involved. But when it comes to capital allocation or hiring a president, we are super involved, right? We want to be the there for the decision process, and we want to be the final decision-maker. So when you're buying these assets, is it a typical cash transaction or are you sometimes coming up with like seller financing or using SBA loans or different kind of structures to get the deals done? Or they've just very vanilla, like, Hey, we'll pay 10 million bucks in cash. And here it is. Yeah. So what it it changes over time, right? It's a spectrum of time. When we first got started, we are cash poor and we are time rich, right? We're willing to put in unlimited time and unlimited effort in order to get a good deal across the line, but we don't have much money. Fast forward to today, we have more cash, but less time and less willingness to just deal with complications, right? So in our first few deals, we had elements of seller notes and SBA and earnouts, et cetera. So I'll give you two examples. Our first two broadband businesses that we bought, we bought using SBA financing. We put down the total value of the business, I think, was $6 million. And to buy that, we just put down $300,000 because we got the rest paid for between SBA and seller financing. So we put up $300,000 of equity. We got, a, we got a seller note and SBA financing to be paid over 10 years. This business was generating close to two million of EBITDA, so we're not only paying down the the SBA note every single year, but we're getting a hundred percent plus cash on cash return on our investment, and we're banking cash just in case for a rainy day. So that's an example of an incredible deal. And in this lower kind of SB, SMB style acquisition where, where you're looking at a business of that size, there's a ton of opportunity, right? Because the reality is there's many businesses out there. There's not that many buyers. And when that happens, you kind of get to dictate what structure works for the two of you, right? What does the seller want as far as price? And what can you provide as far as structure in order to get this type of deal done? And there's countless examples of that out there. There's another business, which was also a broadband business, which we bought on a 90% seller note, right? The owner had been running it for 15 years. It was a business doing a million of EBITDA at the time. We paid three times for it. So already the multiple was really good, but also we put down, again, 300K in order to buy that 
deal plus maybe $50,000 in transaction fees. And again, now we, instead of the SBA announced, instead of the SBA deal, the owners, the lender, we're paying him some fixed interest rate every single quarter. And we're, we're now running the business. He doesn't have to run the business. And we're generating that cash flow for ourselves. So I think the real lesson here is, you know, if you want to acquire a business or you want to invest in the lower middle market segment of private equity, there's a ton of opportunity out there, right? And not only can you get good prices and a nice, a good arbitrage on price, but you can get an incredible arbitrage on structure and style. I just listened to another interview where some guy said, look, like I'm happy to pay you a billion dollars as long as I get to pay you a billion dollars per year over the next billion years, you know? So it doesn't matter, like, it doesn't really matter what the A dollar a year over the next billion years. A dollar per year, yeah, Yeah. exactly. A dollar per year for the next billion years, thank you. So it's kind of like your price, our terms, or our price, your terms, and somewhere between the two of those, you get a connection with the seller that makes sense for both sides. From an investor standpoint, that's actually an incredible reason why investors out there should be investing with smaller funds because a smaller fund size, not only does it force you to be very specific with the deals you want to go after, but it forces you to structure deals in a creative way that can be incredibly accretive to their capital, just like the story you told. If, if you had 6 million bucks of committed capital, you just probably would have bought that business. Maybe not you, but a lot of people would have bought that business. Just here's $6 million. And they wouldn't have created the operational leverage and the compounding and the real leverage that you created. And and I think about us, like we're raising a $30 million fund. We're going to start soon. And people are saying like, oh, that's kind of small. And for the same reasons that you've described, and this is one that I haven't thought of, the kind of force and the pressure that you're under actually probably is one of the factors that ends up enhancing the returns when you look at smaller funds to larger funds. Absolutely. I'm a big believer in constraints drive creativity. And I believe in that across the chain, right? If you have a ton of capital, you're going to be less creative. And if you have very limited capital and you need to achieve achieve the same goal, you're going to be very structured, very thoughtful. You're going to put in the hustle and you're going to get better outcomes always. And I think that applies at the fund level. And I think that applies at the company level, right? So for our companies, we have very tight budgets with determined that we set up with our presidents. We're not setting up the budgets. We're working with them and they're proposing something. And our goal is to keep as little cash in the bank as possible because it focuses the mind, right? Even the most frugal, parsimonious president with a big capital balance in their bank account is going to be a little bit less creative, a little bit less strategic and less thoughtful. But if there's very little capital in the bank account, even though they know kind of our parent companies out there, but if there's very little in the account that they watch, they're going to be more thoughtful, more structured, more creative. They're going to create more value. They're going to drive better margins. It's and We've tried both, by the way. We've tried a lot of capital in the bank account and we've tried no capital, little capital in the bank account. And we've just learned that the psychology of the latter is is undeniable. I'm smiling because we didn't talk about it. We can talk about it now, but you are getting into the hotel business 
And one of the things we do, because we own the real estate and we operate the hotels, is we have a separate operating company and we have a separate company that owns the real estate. And the real estate company essentially sucks all of the cash from the operating company every single month. We leave a couple hundred thousand dollars for, for float. And the reason why we do it is because exactly that. It kind of sets the mindset and it sets the tone. It's like, you need to live within the means that we've all laid out for you. You have a budget and you need to live with the amount of money that you make. And we take all the profit and ship it up to the real estate company. You know, it's just a bank account in the other bank. But that's what we do. And, and I'd recommend you to do that as well as you embark on your hospitality adventures. Yeah, that's a good point. And, and I can give a little bit of context to what we're doing there. It, it might be interesting for people listening. So we made an investment in a property management, hotel management company two years ago. And it's kind of a funny story because the way we learned about that investment is they reached out to my business partner on Twitter. My business partner and I, we have an audience on Twitter and LinkedIn. It's been incredibly helpful for our business. And he one day put out his Calendly link, which is his like scheduling link. And he said, I'm going to open up 15 minute slots for the next week. Feel free to book. And he had hundreds of people book. It was chaos. And I, I think he's crazy for doing that. I don't want to do that. But after taking 100 phone calls, he called me and he said, okay, you know, we have two guys that want to invest with us. And then here's two interesting deals that we should consider. And one of them in particular was these three guys in Miami who'd started a, a hotel management company and were generating incredible profits for these little boutique hotels and, and little motels. Basically, they what they realized is that most of these kind of small middle of the pack hotels and motels just don't make a lot of money, right? And you know all about this, right? Like if you're subscale, you have 50 keys, you kind of need the same amount of staff as you do with 150 keys. So your costs are high, your relative costs are high, but your profit or your revenue top line is much lower. Most owners that are running these hotels don't know anything about marketing and they're running high labor costs. So those are the two main problems that, that these guys saw. So what they did is they started managing these hotels, taking them over and managing them end to end, and they automate a lot of the labor out of the pack, right? They remove any kind of frills from the hotel, and they really just focus on profit, 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 profit at every cent, every dollar level. And on the other side of the equation, they're very good internet marketers, right? So they focus a lot on driving top of funnel, both through booking uh, both through like the booking engines and off of the booking engines directly to the website as well. So between those two things, they are decreasing the prof the the cost structure, increasing the profit, and they're increasing the top line of these of these businesses, and they're creating very profitable companies. So we looked at them for you know they were at three properties at the time. They've grown to over fifteen now, and when we made that investment, we watched them for a little bit, and we saw that you know they're batting 100% increasing profit, sometimes doubling NOI for these properties. So obviously we started licking our lips and said, hey, we, we should probably own the real estate. These guys are creating millions of value for, for the real estate owners. And I don't know much about real estate. I, you know, besides that I grew up in a home really. And so I, I went out and I found a partner with this gentleman, Marley, and we started enduring hospitality group. And, and Marley's background is 15 years in 
acquisitions in multifamily value add and then same thing in hotels for the last kind of seven years or so. So we're under contract for our first property right now. And we're looking at, a, at another uh, series of properties as well that our hotel management company will manage. And it's something that I'm, I'm incredibly excited about and I'm learning a lot. So I'm, so I'm looking forward to giving the update on this a year from now, letting you know how it's going. And I am going to be a resource to you throughout that first year. So sitting here today, what scares you most about kind of growing that business? You know, I like to say when I go into like a new industry, I'm scared shitless. And that's exactly the case, right? It's very important to me when we enter a new business or business model that we don't lose money, right? That's the name of our game, right? It isn't, can we double? Can we triple? Can we quadruple our money? It's if don't lose money, don't lose money, don't lose money. That is always the number one rule, the number one lens. So right now, when we go into these properties, it's really me getting comfortable with the understanding that like, no matter what, even if things go sideways here and we sell this property, we're going to make our money back or we're going to make our LPs money back. Right. And that's really the lens that I want to have for our first handful of properties before we're going outside of our comfort zone and taking a little bit more risk. And one way that we kind of minimize the risk, I would say one way that we table that is, and I think you work this way as well. We've talked about this before is we focus on high value A A plus locations with, with meaningful supply constraint, right? Because if there's a supply constraint in that market and the local municipality, the local planning committees don't allow any more hotels or they don't allow any more hotels of this type, then as inflation grows and rents go up and the number of people grows and the number of people traveling grows, which has happened over the last few years, there will always be a demand here, but the supply will always, always be constrained. So that's, that's kind of our, our two core areas of focus. Our one, focus on areas of supply constraint, A-plus locations. And our second one is run it with our low-cost high profit margin operating company so that we can be sure that we can cover our bills and, and, and do well. You're thinking about it the right way because where travel is today, I think demand has never been stronger or never has the, has there been a stronger prospect for strengthening demand and the supply picture in many cases, the highest and best use is not a hotel. So it looks very good. I ask all the guests on the podcast the same closing question. So talking about hotels, I'd like to know what is your favorite hotel? So one of my favorite trips that I've ever taken, oh my God, this is so cliche. Me and my fiance agree that of all the trips we've ever taken, the best country in the world is Italy. I'm sorry to all the other countries. It's just hard to compete I love many other countries, but this one is particularly special and has a warm place in our heart. And I'm probably just like every other boring couple in the world. Italy special, surprise, surprise. So when we were there a couple of years ago, my business partner recommended that we check out a hotel in Tuscany called Novanta 90. And basically it's a couple of Dutch hoteliers that bought a defunct 500-year-old town in the hills of Tuscany. So the problem in Italy that they face is they have all these little tiny towns and eventually people moved out of them and moved to the city so they could actually make money. So there's all of these abandoned towns and 
the local municipalities and the, the country itself actually incentivizes people to buy these towns and restore them. So you can buy a little 500-year-old town for like a dollar sometimes. And I think that's what these guys did. So it's, it's, it's a two-hour drive, I think, from Florence. It's in the hills. You drive up this sketchy dirt road for a while. And when you get up there, it's a series of what used to be homes built out of these big rocks, right? Like stacked rock structures that they have remodeled to look like a cute little rustic hotel. So they put like copper piping, but on the outside of the rock, because you can't dig into it. They built a beautiful infinity pool and you go out there and it's kind of, it's really like well integrated in nature. They have a local farmer. His name is Fabricio. He raises the pigs. And if you're eating any like prosciutto or salami, it's because Fabricio made it. If you're eating meals, it it's cooked by the local chef who cooks three meals a day and you sit at these family tables. So you go there and you're in nature. You're in Italy. You know, the food's delicious. The wine is delicious. The service is incredible. You've got some of these like nicer touches, but it's really, really rustic, right? It's certainly not, not for everybody. And day to day, they have different activities. You know, you can go on mountain bike rides. You can go on a hike. You can go see the wild boars. You can go down to the local town. You can just hang by the pool and relax. And it's a great place for family. You know, a bunch of people out there with their kids. Obviously, every culture you could ever imagine. People are speaking different languages. They're doing wine tastings. You can learn how to make pasta. So it's a really special place. And it, it fits my kind of like way of traveling well. I love to be in nature. I love things that are like a little bit more rustic and less shishi. So I love it. I, I, I highly recommend it. I hope a bunch of people don't all of a sudden start signing up so because they have a very limited guest list that can go. That's an amazing recommendation. I've never heard of this place and I am immediately going to go look this up. And I love that style of travel and that's the future. Thanks for coming on the podcast. I really appreciate you. My pleasure, Jake. This was fun. Hey, everyone. It's Jake here. Thanks again for joining me on this conversation. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or YouTube. Lastly, don't forget to follow me on Twitter at Jay Warzak. I'll see you in the next episode. Jake Warzak is the founder and CEO of Dove Hill Capital Management. All opinions expressed by Jake and his guests are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Dove Hill Capital Management. This podcast is for informational purposes only and does not reflect or represent real estate, financial, or investment advice.